Payo is a payment platform made by Hospo for Hospo. And their new self-checkout technology, Payo Checkout, is here to help you manage your venue. It lets your customers easily settle the bill at the end of their meal in seconds by scanning a Payo Checkout QR code on their table. Start offering self-checkout for your customers and save an average of 10 minutes per table with Payo Checkout, the fastest way to pay in hospitality venues. Visit payo.com.au. Welcome to another Principal Hospitality Podcast. I'm your host, Sean DeVries. Thanks so much for tuning in to another episode. Principal of Hospitality has been developed to tell the stories of professionals within the dynamic world of hospitality. We're straight talking, ethically minded, and a reliable online source of information and inspiration for people in the hospitality industry. Now, on to today's podcast. Established by brothers Trevor and Stephen Sims in 2010, Industry Beans is a transparent operation of sourcing, roasting, and brewing specialty coffee. In 2013, they opened Industry Beans Fitzroy, which is an open-planned coffee roastery and cafe, and somewhere I visited on a regular basis to get amazing cups of coffee. Nine years later, and now they've got seven venues across Melbourne, Sydney, and Brisbane, as well as a strong wholesale and e-com network. So I feel really fortunate to sit down with the CEO, Trevor Simmons. Hey, man, how are you? Good, Sean. Thanks for having me. Uh, absolutely fantastic to have you on the podcast. As I said in the intro there, I mean, Industry Beans has been a big part of my life for many years now. Uh, and we joked on the phone, I think a couple of weeks ago, that I used to work for uh, a bigger group down the road in Fitzroy, but used to park right near Fitzroy <laughs> Industry Beans and get a good cup of coffee on my way to my job where I could have got free coffee um, just because the coffee was so great. So it's been a, you know, it's been a, a brand that I've really respected for a long time. So let's talk about, you know, how you started out in the industry and obviously how industry being started with your brother. Coming in and, and that venue's not there anymore. Yeah. Uh, we're up the road now, which has uh, been a nice journey. Well, I mean, to take a step back, my brother and I started uh, a cafe up in Northcote before we started Industry Beans. Um, mm-hmm. And we did that purely because we, this was 12 years ago, I think. A, we didn't want to work for anyone else. B, we were probably pretty naive. And C, I think we just, we saw the specialty coffee thing happening. We didn't really understand it. We'd mm. seen, we were really into you know, beer and wine and spirits to a lesser extent. And we were trying to find what our what our avenue was going to be if we ended up doing our own business. I thought I'd just go straight, open a restaurant, get into restaurant world and, and go for gold. Not really knowing that, what that meant. I mean, I worked in bars and restaurants. Yeah. But for Steve, he was studying engineering. So he was kind of on the outer from the hospitality scene, except for the fact he worked for a coffee roaster. Mm. And he was sort of going down this path of saying, I really think we should try this coffee game. Like, I'm really into it. I've been roasting coffee. I've been learning about it. This whole terroir stuff that you're always talking about with mm. wine. I think there's something to it. Um, and at that time, there was a couple of coffee players popping up. And we were sort of, you know, we were young. I was 21. Um, we were just trying to sort of figure out what a business model looked like. And we ended up landing on a cafe in Northcote um, purely because we found a shop three doors up the road from where Steve lived. Right. And it just seemed like a good idea. It wasn't a cafe before. It was just an empty tenancy. And we basically took that, converted it into a cafe with you know, very little money. We went on the one of the government sort of support programs and built our sort of um, wage based on that and then got the cafe open. We put a big expensive Sinesso on the front bench and that was pretty much it. The rest was made from you know, materials from the tip. Um, but that got us into coffee. And... Within a year, we were roasting out of the place that Steve used to work at. Um, yep. 
And then that's where the vision to create this, you know, all in one venue that showcased a brand with, you know, on-site roasting production. Um, and it was basically the same business model we have today, which was sourcing roasting, brewing specialty coffee in one venue. Yeah. Um, and it was a mixture of wanting to do hospitality, wanting to enter wholesale even back then, yeah. and wanting to do retail or e-commerce, which we launched pretty much at the same time we launched Industry Beans. Yeah, for sure. That site in Fitzroy that I talked about how I love so much. Now, when you open that, obviously with the roastery there, with so many different elements to play, the sound, the smells, everything about it, was that unique at that point in time when you'd opened it? Like where did you get the vision to do a site like that? We originally based it on the brewery model. I think it was Little Creatures was the first inspiration for us. Um, We saw that as just a really cool concept that you could go into a brewery, get a meal, experience production, obviously on a much bigger scale than what we were able to afford to do. Yeah. Um, and then Seven Seeds had also opened as well, and mm. we were always big fans of um, that concept. I mean, the, the food side wasn't as um, prevalent in there, but they were really committed on the coffee side and showcasing roasting and, and brewing there. So I think it was a mixture of those two. And then just, just restaurants. We just love restaurants. So we were trying to bring a full-service-style restaurant with the coffee roasting and then also with you know the retail element. So I think it was inspired by a few things. But we, we sat at Seven Seeds when we were first doing the planning for it. Yeah, right. And heaps of other cafes. Had you worked with your brother before? Only at the first cafe. And, and we weren't uh, – I mean, we got along really well as kids, but we weren't exactly hanging out all the time mm. out with business plans. I think it was the first time we'd ever sat down talking about a business idea, drinking beers, that we agreed that night to set up a – a cafe, like it was, it was really like overnight. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And we're still, we're still brothers and still friends <laughs> and business partners. Yeah. What have, what have been some of the you know challenges around that? I mean, being you know being in business, uh, business with your brother. I mean, that must have some some challenges. Uh, look at that. I mean, we're pretty good. I mean, we're so outcome focused, and maybe that's just how we're, we're raised or wired. So mm. everything we do is a practical conversation. Like, there's no emotion in it. I think the good thing is that our, the rest of our family is not involved. Like our <laughs> folks are well and truly not involved, um, apart from being great supporting people. Yeah. So it is just Steve and I. And I think at the end of the day, you've got a loyalty to your family, you know, most of the time, if not all the time. And it, if nothing else, I've got a loyalty to Steve that you might have to a best mate for sure, but there's nothing more than that, that family bond, I think. So if nothing else, I want it to work out for him. And that's, I hope that goes both ways, but that's kind of what's kept us going along the years. So when you have those tough times, you can just take a breath and go, at the end of the day, I want, I want things to work out for my brother. Yeah, I want things to work for him, which will hopefully help me as well. But if you're putting them first, then you generally make a decision that's in their interest. And if that goes both ways, which seems like it has, mm. we're constantly trying to help each other um, you know, get to a better place. And so we've had very few you know, issues or blowouts or you know, moments where anyone's trying to walk away or anything. And, and particularly, you know, maybe in the first couple of years, probably because we were getting pissed every night and, you know, <laughs> like trying to count our pennies. I mean, there might have been a bit more like stress there and I was going out late at night. Steve, was, Steve would do the early shift. Um, but since then, uh, and the businesses are the size now. We've, we've sort of been able to go and do the bits that we both really enjoy the most, I think. Coming from outside of coffee and obviously with Steve being in coffee, was it was it harder for you to understand sort of the coffee business coming because there's you know there's there's parallel difference between booze and then coming into something that's you know coffee generated right like especially with with profit margins and mm. and the price you can actually charge for a coffee was it was it harder for you to sort of clarify how this business is going to work in a different way I think um, it was probably when things started to for Steve and I we found our own sort of part in the business which was really good um, I mean I, I was running restaurants I ran my first restaurant when I was 18 I lied about my age wow. um, I'd, I'd only waited for about two months before and 
ran a fifty person rest like fifty staff restaurant um, after a couple of months because it just it was just natural I think to us. So I came from that side of it. I was also studying wine and I was really passionate about um, the profiles of wine and the flavor of wine and drinking wine, less so around like the the science of it or the geography of it. I was really mm. into just the actual product that you were drinking. So which is very similar to coffee. You know, once you start getting into a product like that, you can can just really enjoy it for what it is. Um, yep. Steve, on the other hand, was definitely more of the science-backed, you know, engineering approach to everything. Um, so when we started the cafe, I think we just learned off each other. He taught me how to make coffee. I mean, I thought I could make coffee like most restaurant people, but he taught me how to actually make coffee. Uh, and at the same time, I ran the kitchen and ran the ran the cafe, and I think both our sort of skills helped each other. But I just sort of, I mean, I, I love learning things, and particularly from my brother. So he's literally still there taught me how to pour rosettas and how to you know, dial in in the morning and how to dial in different single origins and profiling and all that sort of stuff. Um, and he was probably learning as he went, but he's just that engineering passion for getting the best out of a product. That's what he's, he was really f- sort of um, enjoying and engaging with. And I just sort of learned it from him. And then we learned from other people. That was yeah. how we did it. Yeah. Were you surprised at the sort of craft and, and, the, and the time that it took to sort of learn those really deep fundamentals of making great quality coffee? Yeah, and I think... I mean, I guess because we were young and just going on the journey, we probably didn't didn't realize the scope of what we were, what you could get into with coffee and how far you could take it. And mm. uh, then we went too far. I think when we opened Industry Beans, we'd gone too far into the rabbit hole, and we had like this coffee bible. I don't even remember it, but it was like thirty pages that oh, I used yeah. to see it upstairs printing. Mm. Had like these, I guess every page uh, had every coffee had a page. And every coffee had a brew method and we had about 10 different coffees on at any one time. And you go yeah. through and choose it and had a map of where the coffee came from or to our, to our information, which we spent more time trying to find that probably than, you know, and then printing it, then let alone trying to train the staff to make it. So mm-hmm. I think over the five years, we probably didn't realize how far you could go. And over the last you know, 10 years since then, we've really been focusing on what does the customer engage with? What do they care about? Do they need a coffee Bible? Probably not. But would they like to know where the coffee comes from and the, and the brand that sits behind it and the, and the people that make it? Definitely. So, yeah. Yeah. So we sort of, I think we're a bit naive and then we went too far and now we pulled it back. Yeah. Can I ask why you did want to take it that far? Had you seen had you seen another brand doing that and you wanted to replicate that? Or was nah. that something you were trying to do just we were off really the ground? Early. I mean, I don't know if we were the first, but we were certainly one of the first ones to do you know, tasting cards. And when we had Penny Farthing, which is still there, by the way, and we still supply it and, and some old chefs of ours own it now, which is awesome. Mm. Um, we used to print out like an A4 card cut it in half and that was your tasting card it was on like a xerox printer and it like would chew through ink but we were obsessed with this idea of giving customers information i I don't know where we got the idea from it certainly wasn't from another hospital another cafe business or coffee business maybe it was in wine maybe it was something to do with that yeah i was going to a lot of wineries at the time and i really liked again taking that experience in a winery bring it back into the cafe and again we're talking about a small standalone cafe in north we weren't changing the world we were just trying to give customers on high street a really great experience when they came in for a coffee and something a bit different. Yep. Um, uh, so I think that then that evolved. I think we just, we're quite obsessive and I think we just got too obsessive about it to be honest. And that's probably my fault. And I think we just sort of, once you do something, once you you've, you know, really get into something, you just want to take it to the nth degree. And then it, I think it was after we opened industry bands and we're about six months in and we were just getting reamed every weekend and customer like, experience probably wasn't that great. Like, right. It was so busy on the weekends and then mm. actually pretty quiet during the week. Yeah. But we were, like I said, obsessing around printing out this 20-page menu, getting all this information. And then with the baristas, like obsessing over how they were making it and different like profiles in the morning. Like a barista came in, they had to dial in 10 coffees every morning. It took them an hour Whoa. just for the coffee and... Then we, I don't know what the realisation was. It was probably on a Saturday when we were working there and it was like 30 minutes for a coffee and an hour for food. We are like, we've got to simplify things. Yeah, we've gone too right. Far. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So how did you go about pegging that back? Because if, you, if you've if you amplified it so much, 
and you and you and you're doing something which no one's done, and you can have this sort of halo moment in a in a way. You're obviously doing everything really really well, except for the timing. Base. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, how do you how do you actually go about pegging that back and 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 stripping it down? We were well. It was interesting when we opened the industry. We had um, and the reason why it's relevant is we had this branding that was done by some other company. Um, we didn't know what branding was. I didn't know what marketing meant advertising or anything yeah so they did a brand for us we use that on our menus it was it was part of like the dna of that sort of very complex it was a very complex you know bit of branding it's a very complex way of explaining industry beans and i think everything sort of flowed from that again not realizing it at the time but everything we did was complex um so we were going through after six months i sort of looked around looked at this stupid coffee bible and um looked at the food menu which had things like smoked eel on it and like we were smoking our own eel in-house and it's just like wow. who wants to eat that <laughs> like it's, i look at the menu now it's just it was awful it was disgusting but and yeah. it had it was like so many foams and so many gels and spherification and mm. i was just like not only got obsessed on the coffee i was really obsessed on the food side with our chef and our chef really enabled that at the time mm. he was right into it as well we're reading like all these molecular gastronomy books and trying to bring it to the food. And as yeah. you can hear, we just like got caught up in this feeling, this need to be really like interesting and different for everything. Um, yep. So at that time I, I looked at the branding. I was like, you know, I, I hate this branding and I hate this, like this, this mood that we've created. So I rebranded, I did the branding myself. It's still the same branding we have today and went for that really clean white um, canvas with just the simple industry beans logo on it. Yep. And that kind of then flowed through our menu simplified, our offering simplified, um, the way we talked about our product simplified. The whole business actually simplified and it actually got us on with giving a better customer experience because we're thinking about what do the customers want and how can we communicate that. At the end of the day, customers want good coffee, food and service. I mean, that's that's it. Don't, you know, Take away some of that fluff and that's when we, we removed the fluff from what we are doing. We removed the big coffee Bible, we removed the, the need for the theatre and just focused on what we do best, which is product. Um, mm. And that was really when I felt Industry Bands actually started... Um, started succeeding as a brand and as a, as an operation. So that was about a year in. Um, so that first year I reckon we were running around like headless chalks trying to figure out how to, how to build a, just build a base camp to get to base camp, you know, just to actually get a good product service and um, a good experience for the customers. And then we started to grow the business in wholesale and all the other bits. Yeah. yeah. It's a, it's a really interesting insight that the fact that the logo on the branding change actually give you the authority to then strip everything back and make it cleaner and, and have a, rest, a fresh start for industry beans. That's really, really interesting. And it was a, and I remember the moment um, we did redid this branding and we came out with this menu, new menu, went from uh, 23 pages to uh, a single double-sided um, <laughs> bit of card, like really expensive card and nicely branded and we were yeah. doing it all in-house. And I took it, I was still working on the floor and I took it over to some customers and sat down and this guy goes, you know, I've been coming in for a year and I have to say, I love your new branding. I think this is all, who's the design agency? I think this is great. He's like, I'm a designer. He's like, I'm not here, I'm not here to blow smoke. I'm just like, I think this is just awesome. I really, ha-. he's like, to be honest, I really hated what you had before. And I love your food and coffee, but as a designer, you had that ugly like board with your menu on it and it was just disgusting. And I was like, I, I really appreciate that. Thank you. I didn't, I didn't tell him who did it or anything, but I walked away from that. And I was like, oh, I feel really good about this. And I haven't forgotten that. And yeah. I don't know. He just, he was, he'd been coming in, but he was having a better experience because we were articulating it so much cleaner and simpler yeah for sure yeah how obviously we i want to talk about the different facets of the business the different uh different ways of um sorry i'll start that again i want to talk about the different strategies in the business in regards to the wholesale in regards with e-com and whatnot um but how long did it take before you were starting wholesaling industry beans roasted coffee 
I think we started in 2015. So that first year we weren't confident in the brand or the packaging. Yep. I, we may have had a few people we sold coffee to, but there was there was no intent from our end really to do that. We was just trying to get our house in order, I reckon. Right. And in 2014, we really just we cleaned up the branding, redid the packaging, and really started thinking about what um, what our proposition was. And by 2015, we were starting to wholesale um, in a very light way. Like we didn't have salespeople. We've only, we've only ever had one salesperson for Industry Beans Wholesale, uh, <laughs> and it's all inbound. Our, our goal was just to build good relationships and build an inbound um, wholesale business, which is a very slow journey it, you know, yeah. to have it overnight. So I think that's why it took a couple of years to get going. Yeah, right. Um, and we didn't do equipment. We didn't do – we just roasted coffee and just did, um, just did wholesale as, as a, as a coffee-only proposition. Um, yeah, right. So And it was just Steve and I. I. I did the deliveries and the sales and Steve did the roasting or vice versa, um, and that was it. But it wasn't until we had the cafe you know, sorted and the experience for customers where at a level that we thought we could then just do continuous improvement that we then started you know, focusing on wholesale. Was there a reason why you didn't do the extra things that other brands were doing in that space in regards with coffee machines, in regards with, you know, four BDMs in the market and all that kind of stuff, actually trying to push, push, push? Was it just this stripping back that you had this epiphany of that you decided to just flow that through the rest of the business? Uh, I don't think we had the money, for one. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) a good reason. Like, we were beyond uh, opening a business on the smell of an oily rag. Like, industry bands, as great a venue as it was, and we built it incredibly affordably. Steve and I built a fair bit of it as well. Yep. Um, like very hands-on with that sort of stuff. We didn't have any money to actually grow the business. Like we had no, I didn't know what cash flow was then, but we didn't have cash flow. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we had what was in the bank at the end of the week, and that basically paid the staff and paid the bills. Um, so I don't, th- I don't think we had enough capital to expand um, for one, let alone hiring BDMs. Like the thought of hiring a BDM would have just been a mind-blowing exercise for us because yep. the cost of that versus the time it takes to get a return on that. Not that we really knew that was challenging. And also we were, we were not salespeople. So we really weren't, we didn't like this idea of going around and handing out samples and knocking on doors. And mm-hmm. I still don't like that today. I really, mm-hmm. I, I know that sounds counterproductive for a business that's growing, but I struggle with the concept of going and s- trying to sell yourself to someone else. We, we wanted to build a brand that people um, heard about or knew about or interacted with and, and felt like they actually wanted to engage with. Um, and we've learned a lot about that approach over the years but i think that stems from steve and i just we're not salespeople. you know we're product people and yeah. our goal is to build the best products and then build the right relationships to get them to the right people so yeah um yeah so it was different but um and then over the years we as we grew we picked up some really great you know clients that we still work with today we were able to then start offering machinery and um more of a team but still our team is 95 percent um, account management and operations um and five percent sales yeah. yeah right yeah sounds like it's happened very organically I think, yeah, I, th- I suppose so in that way, yeah. And we've, you know, we've expanded into markets like Brisbane and Sydney and you definitely need to go out there and build relationships. But the moment that changes from building relationships to knocking on doors to make sales, it, our value proposition falls through the floor because we're not, we're not designed for that because we can't, we don't go out there competing on price or throwing cash around or throwing equipment around. We want genuine relationships and relationships that, you know, are going to end up being mutually beneficial for both us, but certainly for the customer rather than going there saying better price, better, you know, offer or cheaper whatever it is it's just it doesn't doesn't work for us and we found that if that ever does happen with us you know if a sales person or someone you know gets a lead if it's the wrong relationship right from start it usually ends up uh, not working out yeah yeah i know that too well <laughs> um <laughs> uh let's talk about the actual cafes themselves yeah so obviously that amazing site in fitzroy like what was the next site that you guys decided to do how'd that come about the next side we had this after doing the rebranding mm. we look not only did we look at the um, 
materials. We were looking at Industry Beans as a venue, which in its own right was a great venue, did really well, actually won some awards, and the, uh, the guy that designed it, Matt, um, good on him. Like, he did it on a scrappy budget with clients who didn't know what they are doing, and he got he got some really good recognition out of it, and so he should have. Mm. Um, it's a cracking venue. Yeah, wasn't it? Um, but as the branding cleaned up, it's sort of, we started going on down this journey of this sort of clean, white, you know, refined sort of look, um, and... So I really wanted to set up a just a standalone espresso bar. Um, I love the idea of, uh, I think I'd seen the mod bar as well at that point in time. Mm. I wasn't in Australia, but I'd seen the mod bar and I sort of had this like this um, image I kept seeing in my mind of Stephen Hart standing in this, in this white venue with his mod bar, being able to talk to customers and really interacting. Because that's what we did at our first venue, except there was this massive coffee machine in the way. We love standing at the bar and chatting to customers. And yep. so I was like, surely we can do that in the city, high volume, um, That'd be really cool. And it, but it took a couple of years, I think, to pull that together. Um, and we and it was at the same time, I think, the mod bar came out. And we thought that was just a really cool bit of kit just to break down that barrier between the customer and the, the person making coffee. Um, and I found a site on – and, again, it did happen relatively organically, to be honest. Like I was sort of looking around, sort of not. Mm. And um, this shop came up. wasn't a cafe before. And I just liked this. I liked the facade of it. I liked the clean shell. We found some um, people to help us design it, and I was just fixed on this idea of having this white box um, with our branding and our products sitting on top of it. And that's that was on Little Collins Street, and that opened in 2017, and it's still there now. And smashing it, yeah, it's awesome. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it's a beautiful site. Just clean, really um, easy to access. Like, there's a lot of things which are really pleasurable about it. Mm. Is there a reason why? Because I'm sure you would have been offered a site around the corner. At Catherine Place, like, is there a reason which is more Melbourne layway and culture and all that mm. kind of stuff? Is there a reason why you didn't sort of go Melbourne laneway and actually went around where the laneway actually was? Was that was that strategic? It's a good question. Um, I think I, I don't know. It's like when we chose the site in Fitzroy. People, some people were like, oh, "Obvious, set up a venue on the back streets of Fitzroy," but. Back then, there weren't actually many venues on the next no. streets of Fitzroy. We were very early on, and I was really obsessed with this idea of having it off Brunswick Street. And people were like, you're crazy, why aren't you on Brunswick Street? And I was like, no, 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 we wanted a warehouse, we wanted this concept, and we wanted people to find it. Like, I really like that idea. Yeah. Um, and we right. don't want to be where other people are. I've always feared going and being and trying to compete where other people are already doing, doing a really good job. That's not our vibe. Um, and so that strip on Elizabeth, uh, just off Elizabeth Street on Little Collins, there was no one there. And I really liked that. And we really, really respected where other coffee roasters had had done CBD sites or other good CBD sites. There's nothing in that strip. There's now heaps. But I was kind of like, look, this is this is just a good spot that we can own. And it was actually a really quiet part of the strip. Um, and now it's become a lot busier, which is nice. But, yeah, most definitely. Um, I just saw it in a very similar way to here that no one else was there. It was kind of off the beaten track, which can even in the city mean off the laneways. And it was also just a really good site that I think we could we could work with. So, mm. yeah. And strategically, with the with the venues that have followed that, obviously sites in Brisbane, sites in Sydney, like how have those opportunities come up? Have they been something which have been again offered to you from inbound, or is that something which you guys have gone out and looked for and you know strategically? Every wanted? site has been outbound for us. Um, yeah, like yep. we've, we've been, we get offered a lot of sites. Yes, um, but I I sometimes wonder that if and because we're not we're not massive hospitality players, so we don't I don't think we necessarily get offered best sites um i don't really know but i, I just same with sydney i just wanted to find a site in the city that had really good uh well, really good skin for us to work with but certainly wasn't where there was a huge amount of competition or necessarily other roasters there already and the site that we found on york street was exactly that it was a beautiful building um and it was just up for lease like, it wasn't like we got in and you know some developer found us mm. um it just it came up for lease i think we were pretty early on but um and we were looking hard in Sydney. We were trying to find a home there for us. Um, 
Brisbane was the same. Found a warehouse in Newstead, again, off the beaten track. There's a beautiful street in Newstead called James Street, which is this lovely mm, tree-lined street. You know, mm. uh, and the, you know, the guys that have developed that have done an awesome job. And we're like three streets back from that. And again, people are like, why would you do that? And I was like, well, we wanted a cool warehouse there. We've done a slightly different concept there in terms of the size and scale. Like it's a really significant venue. Um, and then when we opened a small one in the CBD there, it was exactly the same. It's when we found a lease. Like it's old school. It's just like, it's like we just sort of end up just wanting to do what we want to do. And that's hopefully the right, the right play. But I'm really obsessed with getting the right site for the business rather than trying to squeeze the business into the wrong site. Yeah. What, what kind of things in your checklist do you have that, constitute the right site for well, you. Well, and I used to go around with a brief. Like I used to have this brief that I've written um, about, you know, what what are the things that make it a, you know, an attractive site for us. Okay. The first thing was, was light and light is really important to us. So even, for example, our site that we've done at Chadston of all places, which is a shopping centre, mm-hmm. we've got this, this site with this, uh, you know, full um, sided glass window as well as skylights in it that actually make it feel like you could be anywhere, you know, as long as well, it's anywhere with good natural light. So natural light's the first thing. I always used to put high ceilings. I, I just love high ceilings, and like, and the, you get, it's high ceilings in context. Like Little Collins is three point three high ceilings, which is awesome. You know, mm. for a retail store to find that, absolutely, it gives that sense of space. Um, I think the third thing was uh, the facade, um, and, and being able to change the facade, and we changed the facade at all our shops. Except Little Collins, actually, we, we didn't have the money to. But um, that would they were the three things for us that really important. And then location was kind of subjective. It's sort of what we felt worked for us as a brand. Um, and then you start talking about size and facilities and all that sort of stuff, which you know, we're quite specific with the power requirements. I mean, when we do a, even a shop like Little Collins, our power requirements are through the roof because we've got essentially four coffee machines in there and all the other stuff that we have. So Yeah. yeah. Is there, What's the reason for going into state? Was that was that a thinking that you wanted to do wholesale in those states and therefore it made sense to roast in those states? Yeah, I th- and we're only just – so we're setting up a micro-roastery in Double Bay at the moment in Sydney and then we will be roasting it all in Melbourne, Sydney and Brisbane. Um but yeah, fundamentally, we wanted to get the brand into those states first and foremost. And if that could then lead to a wholesale and an e-commerce um, uh, expansion of the business, then that's a really good thing. I think for us, we were hypersensitive about setting up too many shops in Melbourne and you know, other players have gone and done heaps of shops and done really well. I think for us, we just had this this notion or this fear that we, we were sort of uh, cannibalising our own market, which sounds really sounds really like naive again and silly, but no, we really just sense. thought that one or two venues was enough for us as a brand in each city. And we never wanted to be big hospo players. We always wanted to do a couple of really good venues and then move to a new market. So it was sort of driven by partly the feeling that we didn't want to just go and open up people's shops in one city. I really love, um, you know, all different markets in Australia, particularly Sydney and Brisbane. And you and I spoke before we chatted about you know, Adelaide and Canberra. I mean, they're, mm. they're all interesting, different sort of markets. And I really like that. Um, mm. So we wanted to go to Sydney and just do something that we felt was appropriate for Sydney, still with our brand and our product, but um, contextually appropriate for Sydney. Hence, we're in this beautiful old sandstone building and, you know, and offering a, uh, I think an offering that really suits the CBD there. Same in Brisbane. You know, we built this beautiful light-filled venue, but it really works well in this sort of humid climate and, and works well with the, the, the local audience in terms of, um, the, the produce we use and the supplies we use up there. Um, so you, in fundamentally from a business strategy point of view, yes, build the brand, build your wholesale, build your e-commerce. That's basically our model. Um, yep. And if you can roast there, then we feel like we've got a more genuine proposition for wholesale. So Brisbane, we've done really well in wholesale up there with just um, being able to roast locally, support people as we do down here. Sydney, we've never really tried to wholesale uh, significantly up there. We actually have quite a big um, like off, office supply business up there that's just happened over time. And e-commerce from us is actually really strong in Sydney. It's about a third of our business because the brand, that brand piece has worked really well there. So, um, and now that we'll be roasting up there, we'll probably do a bit more wholesale. But yeah, it's definitely, you know, offer what you can with the venues built, you've, you've built as well. Yeah. 
Just a break in the podcast to let you know that Fine Food Australia returns this September to Melbourne. For nearly four decades, Fine Food has been the leading trade event for all food, from retail to hospitality, manufacturing to bakery. Visiting Fine Food will be the recipe to fast track your business for commercial success. Just a reminder that this is a free event to attend, so make sure you register at finefoodaustralia.com.au. Now back to the podcast. I want to talk about e-commerce in a second. Before I ask that, do you find being in different states actually gives you the flexibility to better the brands as a whole? Because like I've been fortunate enough to, you know, obviously from Adelaide, but I've lived and worked in Brisbane and Perth and then obviously in Melbourne now. They're very different markets. Mm. Australia is a very different market mm. depending on what city you're in. So do you, do you find you learn something that might be happening in Brisbane that you're seeing that you use in the, the Melbourne venues or does it not sort of cross over that way? question i mean you're always learning about your brand as you grow it and, and going into a new market is not is never uh easy i mean we're not we wouldn't go into a market and um people say they don't like the brand and go and change our branding for example but yeah. certainly i think you pick up on bits and pieces that people engage with and people that don't and again it comes back to that original thing when we opened fitzroy we thought we thought people wanted a 23 page menu like they i don't think they did i've <laughs> learned now. i think two pages is enough um, yep. and we've got we actually got like a, a full menu now but um, in Brisbane, I think, again, it was about how you communicate more than anything. At the end of the day, I think people want good food, coffee and hospitality, but it's how you communicate it to them. And I think in Brisbane, for example, we're probably a bit too um, minimal when we went up there. Like we were, I was in, we were in full minimal phase where we didn't right. even have branding, I don't think. Like oh, wow. Like we had branding on the front of the building and that was it. In, internally, there wasn't one bit of messaging. Um, still not much serious now I think about it. But, right. but I think we were too... Because I think because we'd, we'd done relatively well down here. And, and when we opened in Sydney, it was really successful. Um, when we went to Brisbane, I think we kind of undercooked it a little bit, even though we built right. this amazing venue. Like it's it's uh, 700 square metres, it's two levels. We built this um, coffee, we're growing coffee up there. It's got a, this great roastery. But we didn't really articulate who we were. Interesting. And I think that was, that was the biggest learning from Brisbane. We kind of just opened. And when you put so much time, effort and resources into building such a big venue and then you just open and, and don't really communicate to each and every customer who you are and why they should care about you. you you do get those learnings very quickly and we found that when we did open there that people were they just didn't really understand who we were and what we were and we we started getting that from feedback through like online or through our staff members people being like so what should I be saying about who we are? Like, are we a Melbourne roastery or are we a Brisbane roastery? Are we yeah, an Australian point. brand? Like, what what are we and what should we be telling customers? And we hadn't thought about that. We just like, oh, we just keep doing what we're doing. We're industry beans. We roast great coffee and all that sort of stuff. And not not arrogantly, it's really just like, we're just gonna we're just gonna do what we do and not make a big fuss out of it. And that was that was probably we probably need to make a bit more of a fuss out of it. It's doing really well now, but yeah, we learned that very quickly. People just didn't understand it because. We just over oversimplified it probably. Let's talk about the e-commerce part of the business. Um, obviously, that was doing quite strongly before COVID, right? But I know obviously e-commerce for coffee has been exploding since COVID. Mm. How is that trending now? Like how, how have you been able to build and sustain that business? Yeah, and e-com, we were always really interested by it. And when we opened Industry Means, we, we got we built a Shopify site, which I mean, everyone has a Shopify site now, but it was really early days. Like Shopify just started in Australia, I think. And mm. I remember talking with them and they're like, oh, it's so great to have an Australian coffee roaster on, on our platform. And I was like, that's <laughs> awesome. And I was talking with the head office and they're like, and um, we were able to get a site up relatively easily. 
But e-commerce back then, this is six, seven years ago, like it was like one bag a week or like two orders a week. Or wow. The big week was 10 orders. And, you know, we were, as a wholesale business, we were doing relatively well then. So you'd suddenly have, you know, however many orders coming in for wholesale, and you have this one tiny little dicky order coming in for e-commerce and inevitably that's the order that got screwed up. So because, you know, the, and the guys would be like, what, there's, there's no point doing this. This is like, what, you know, like 15 bucks. And we, d- we did free shipping Australia-wide, no minimum order right back then. Wow. I was really keen just to get the product out there and give people accessibility. Accessibility is one of our sort of core values in everything we do. And I just, uh, I think that we have now, we still do free shipping Australia-wide. I think the minimum is 15 $15 now because we've got cold brew cans and that's that's the tipping point you can't do a single cold brew can right. to Darwin. <laughs> that's, that's, and the guys finally convinced me to, to put a minimum in place but it's a very accessible minimum yeah um, maybe it's 20 bucks but yeah it's um yeah that and that was really early learnings but it took ages like it took uh, a good few years for us to get a decent consistent business growing and that was through subscriptions and that side of it um and then yeah when COVID hit we were really keen on expanding our product offering we started building something called the espresso club so that was this idea where you get a machine and coffee delivered for a weekly fee and that was happening before covid we hadn't launched it i was trying to convince uh, like a big uh, coffee machine company to join us and, and actually support and let us actually buy the machines off them that mm. was the, that was the challenge and what we wanted to do is break down that final sort of mile in the journey for someone making coffee at home like if i give you a bag of beans or if i give anyone a bag of beans it's absolutely useless unless you've got a coffee machine and grinder and know how to use it. Yep. And so we were selling coffee online for ages and in store and like we were giving out recipes and profiles and ta- like tasting notes. They don't give them tasting notes. Tell them which machine to use or tell them what machine to buy. And people were asking us, what, what mach- home machine should I use? And at the time we were sort of going, I don't know. And like, <laughs> I look back now and I go, what is wrong with me? It's like, it's like giving someone you know, a bottle of wine and say, they say, how do I drink this? And you go, I don't know. Like, <laughs> Put it in a glass, like, you know, or just like it's just it was so it was so like limited in terms of the customers' experience we we're giving, yeah, and so right. that's where that came from. And we were like, look, let's help people make better coffee at home. So let's go and find what machine we would buy at a price point we feel is reasonable, I suppose, which is a really hard thing. It's very subjective how much and you know how much you can spend on a machine, but we couldn't find one necessarily that we would spend a thousand bucks on, for example. I think a thousand dollars for a home coffee machine is a lot of money. And mm-hmm. I was like, even you know, I found one that's pretty good, but I still think for me to give up a thousand dollars in one payment, that's massive. So we created the Espresso Club to try and give people the opportunity to buy a machine over a 12 month period on a weekly fee to us. They can leave if they don't like it, give the machine back. They get coffee, they get on- online videos. They basically get a full experience. So you could be someone who's never made coffee at home, you go on the Espresso Club, get a great experience on boarding then you get coffee machine delivered you can change the volumes if you have too much or too little and you get videos on how to set up the machine which is the first battle and then how to make a coffee on the machine um and then you get live customer service as well and so wow that took about a year so then COVID hit and everyone freaked out including us and you know we're, we're in the middle of opening stores and growing the hospitality side of the business and we'd only been open in Brisbane for four months, I think, as well. So that was a very, we had 60 staff up there. It was a very new business. Suddenly couldn't, we couldn't access them. And at the same time, I was sort of was trying to build this relationship with a machine brand and, and COVID hit. E-commerce obviously exploded like it did for everyone else and that was fine, but I really wanted to get this, the Espresso Club out. <laughs> and I was like, this is the time, you know. I wish <laughs> yes. we had it done a year, a year earlier, but yeah. um, finally convinced DeLonghi to, to let us buy the machines. And I mean, let us as in they don't sell them to roasters. Um, wow. Because they're, they're, the model here is to sell to the big retailers, which is fine. And they jumped on board and then we had to build the back end for it. And then we got it going 
somewhere through like t- towards the end of 2020 and um, spent the first six months just testing it because we're essentially giving you a thousand dollar machine and saying, just give us 30 bucks. <laughs> it's a pretty bit of a trust there and a bit yeah. of, you know, um, back end to build. And it took us about six months to get it right. And then we turned on um, just sort of our marketing strategy and it just exploded and we had a couple of thousand people sign up in the last year. So yeah, wow, that's awesome. awesome. Yeah. Really cool. Did you find that was, were you thinking about the risks that could have happened with something like that with like people having this full pack of stuff from industry beans in regards to the videos in regards to a uh, coffee machine and obviously your coffee because some people just won't be able to make good coffee, yeah. right? Depending on how much information you give them. Like I'm not the best barista. Um, was that a challenge as well? Like making sure that um, a person who's not trained in how to make coffee on a regular basis was actually making good quality coffee that definitely. is so superior as yours. Yeah, definitely. I th- and the, um, I mean, <laughs> we've had some amazing like um, questions that have come through customer service and just some interesting things. Like uh, I think we were asking to chat about the other day with Jane who runs our customer service. And she's like, yes, we still get questions over there with someone saying like, oh, so where does the pod go? I can't, I can't find out where the pod goes in it. Like, what do, where do I put it? Like, and so like, I mean, even though, we, I mean, and this is where communication is key. Even we try and be as upfront as possible about what you're getting in, in the pack, because we did choose just one machine. We chose uh, a blend that goes with it. You can change a blend, but chose a blend that goes with it. it it's a certain style machine that obviously doesn't do pods. And um, you're trying to communicate that. Some people just sign up because they think it's a great deal. Um, some people read the fine print and, you know, they sort of learn more about it. But the reality is, yes, it gets to people and some of them have never made coffee at home before and they're excited they got this machine. The best thing we've, we did was put um, full-time customer service just for the Espresso Club right from right from the start. Wow. And that, that really um, was important to us because you can do as many videos as you like or we do the quick tips when you open the box. You get a, a separate welcome pack to your actual DeLonghi, which gets you set up with like a, a knock tube. Like you don't get a knock tube when you buy a home espresso machine which Gosh. I what are you meant to do with the grinds yes um, like yep. you bang into the bin I don't know, it's not a good experience so there's little things like that we did just to try and I suppose we, we took DeLonghi's troubleshooting guide and we just tried to front end all those issues but you're still going to get people who um, either are just so inexperienced with it or just haven't read it like I probably wouldn't read it or didn't check out the online videos because mm-hmm. most people still don't want to do that um, customer service so that's how we dealt with all those issues and you know they can jump on a, on a call and then um, video they can send through a video if they want yeah you know, however they want to show us what their issue is we can then hopefully help them resolve it um, and the best thing about it all is that you can leave so mm. if you get through all that and you, you're still not happy with the, co- the coffee you're making you still don't think it's whatever your expectations were you can just cancel you can cancel that day yeah and you send the machine back and that's it yeah and, and i think that's probably for me the thing i feel most comfortable about is that if you don't like it you can cancel it whereas if you go and buy a thousand dollar machine and you don't like it. I mean, you can try and get a warranty claim on it, but you know, you, you've bought that machine and you're in with it. So, for us, we've got a 98% uh, retention rate, which is wow. just incredible. Um, whereas I know that I won't give the figures, but the, the numbers on people returning those machines was 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 very very high. Yeah, I bet. Yeah. Plus, the risk is that people, you know, might not like industry beans if it doesn't go well, right? So, and we get a lot <laughs> of people who go on it who don't know who we are. They've bought it on a on the deal, not on us as a brand. Wow. So yeah, and that's exactly right. So they, the only interaction they have with us is not um, as a hospitality business. You know, there's been no warm entry. It's been it's a transactional relationship where they've gone. This looks like a great product and offer. The price is really good because I'm only paying thirty bucks a week. They subscribe. Yeah, but they, then they might make their first coffee. It doesn't taste great, and they go, "Well, industry bean sucks. Like this, is, maybe I should get some supermarket coffee." Absolutely. You know? yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So that that's been interesting. But I, I think overall, that satisfaction rate. We're eighteen months into it now, and 
that's sort of maintaining, which is really good. Um, and a lot of people now through their first year, so they've, they own the machine after 12 months. Yeah, so wow. they've, they've gone through the program um, and then they just drop to a really um, cost-effective ongoing subscription. So they just keep getting coffee at, a, at seven bucks a week, which is God. You know, which is just awesome. So you're basically getting our best price plus an extended members discount for being part of the club and you just get coffee delivered. And then you know, you, the machine's yours. Keep going. Yeah, call us if you have any issues. Um, yeah. And we're getting, I think it's uh, 85 or 90% of people are staying on the program as well, which is awesome. So okay. um, it's, been really, it's been really cool. And then the rest of our e-commerce businesses, of course, like everyone else's, has just, just grown exponentially. Yeah. So how are you thinking about sort of the MPD coming through and all that kind of stuff now that we're in a, you know, normal, quote, yeah, yeah. time of hospitality and, and, and coffee, obviously? Um, how are you building out the next the next sort of retail of the business? Yeah, I think the um, I mean the other thing we built during COVID was our RTD products, so ready to drink products, cold brew, iced coffee. We've got a, a like an iced coffee that can sit on the shelf next to uh, some of the bigger brands out there and, and hopefully compete for that that space in the category. Yep. So um, that iced coffee came out about four months ago, uh, and then the cold brew range um, came out around the same time. So that's been one of the MPDs that's gone in through our e-commerce and, and it's going into the grocery space. Okay. In terms of e-commerce though, uh, we're actually adding a second machine to the Espresso Club, which is a fully automatic machine. So you press a button and get a latte, um, which we were really hesitant to do at the start. We we have got a machine at the moment that has a level of, like you're still making a coffee, you're still pulling a shot, you're still tamping it um, with an with this sort of semi-auto tamper they have, which is cool. And you're still um, putting the group head in, you're still pushing a shot and you're still steaming your own milk. So it's a very, quite a manual process, which has been really great. Mm-hmm. Um, but DeLonghi, we worked with them for the last couple of years, have released um, a fully automatic machine, but with upgrades to the grinder and the, the milk settings and the way it steams and, and textures milk. So you actually get a latte as good as you know, 90% of cafes now, which is awesome. Wow. And we can do it on a, on a similar price point, with just a little bit higher. It's $32 a week. Um, but that's coming out in three weeks, which is really cool. So, because wow. some of the feedback we got from a lot of people is like, "Look, this this all looks great, but I still don't want to make my own coffee. You know, I, I just want a great tasting coffee. I want a good machine, but I don't want to have to knock my grinds into a knock tube. Um, you know, I don't want to steer my own milk. I just, I just that's the one thing I don't want to do. And so we've now finally got a, a second option that we're happy with, and the coffee tastes where it, where you feel comfortable. So then the Express Club will be complete. So it'll be this sort of almost um, manual barista machine with a couple of little quick tricks to make it easier and then it's fully automatic. So that'll sort of flesh out the Espresso Club. Um, what, what made you want to get into iced coffee, if I can ask you? I think, I think it's a really underserved – it's obviously a massive market, right? Mm. It's a really underserved market by brands of your quality mm. to go into it. And I say this because I'm a iced coffee aficionado. I'm from Adelaide originally mm. where Farmers Union Iced Coffee actually outsells Coke. Mm. Right, one of the only spaces in the world which actually outsells Coke. Mm. Like, what are you thinking about sort of that product in its early stages and how you want to build it out? We we when we opened Little Collins, we created a drink called the Fitzroy Iced, which was our iced coffee, and it's iced coffee. So sorry, cold brew, Waddlesey vanilla syrup, and, and fresh milk, whatever milk you choose. Yep. Um, and that was just a drink that we we were like, let's make the best iced coffee, Fitzroy Iced. We've we've taken that to Sydney, taken to Brisbane, and they, it sells really well across our stores. And we were like. What, wouldn't it be cool if we could bottle this product? There's, there's really crappy iced coffees on the market that we just taste like flavoured milk. How could we actually just get cold brew and milk into a bottle format and get it on the shelf? And so we went down the same journey a lot of roasters have, like looking at partnering with milk companies, looking at partnering with um, you know existing um, producers in the market or existing brands in the market or just using our coffee in their uh, uh, you know, milk product, whatever it is. And we couldn't find anything that worked for us. We didn't 
we, we were, and I'm glad we didn't do this. We didn't want to do, well, we wanted to do a fresh product. We didn't want to deal with the logistics of that. And it is really, really hard. And yep. if you look at most of the iced coffees in the market, they've got extended shelf life. And there's a reason for that. It is too hard in Australia to get a product at scale with just, um, just fresh milk. Um, we like serving that in our cafes. We help our wholesale clients do it. That's the way to get those products to market, we feel. Mm-hmm. Um, so we created an extended shelf life product, um, which is still coffee and uh, milk and panela syrup, um, but we're able to stabilize it. So it could, we get 12-month ambient shelf life on it, and it tastes as good. Our first one was just turned 12 months in terms of trials. It tastes as good as a fresh product in-house. And that took wow. – and again, this was pre-COVID. This has been three years we've been doing this for trying to build this ultimate iced coffee that tastes as good as a freshly made one but has the ability to be shipped around Australia in the challenging market that we have. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Wow, that's exciting. It's awesome, yeah. I've spoken to a lot of you know coffee people on the podcast about the increasing price of coffee, what they feel you know uh, a coffee price should actually move to you know in-house in a, in a cafe. Like how are you, how are you feeling about that? At the moment, there's obviously got to be a tipping point. What customers have the affordability to pay, um, and and what they're you know comfortable in paying every single day. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I agree. And and the disparity between the one dollar coffee and where coffee prices are going in cafes now is just getting greater and greater, yep. which is causing more and more friction. And then there's a whole bunch of players that sit within that. Uh, and if you look at the independent cafe market, and we work with you know, heaps of obviously um, small businesses and businesses that started the same way that we did. They have to charge at the higher end. We we charge five twenty for a standard milk based coffee and four ninety for a, a black coffee. I, I think that's probably where it needs to be for for cafes. And a lot of cafes are scared to do that. We're we're certainly more expensive in a lot of areas that we're we're in with our own venues. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, you, know, you find that in you know, Sydney or Brisbane, we're you know, maybe a dollar more than the next place down the road. And so that's a challenge for us as a business. We've got to offer a service or a quality or a proposition that that marries up to that price point. Mm-hmm. Um, now for us, you know, we roast our own coffee. We build these beautiful venues, you know, we spend a huge amount of time and money on training our team and supporting them to make great coffee. They've got amazing equipment, you know, like it's, it is really, there's a lot there to go into that $5.20 cup of coffee for a cafe that perhaps, um, you know, is really competing with the cafe down the road or the three cafes down the road to try and break out of that $4, $4.20, $4. fifty price point and get to $5, it's tough. And so as much as we could sit here and say, look, everyone should charge five bucks, that's, we know what the cost metrics look like. Mm. The reality is, if your three competitors down the road aren't charging that, you're 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 going to struggle to um, retain customers that are really price focused. You'll keep the ones who are loyal, of course. And so, you know, I mean, in an ideal world, everyone would put their prices up closer to five bucks, and that that is what a specialty cup of coffee should cost. If you're buying quality coffee from a roaster who's continued to maintain their quality principles and bought coffee that they were buying two years ago at a higher price point, like we all are, then uh, and we haven't passed on an increased wholesale price to our customers. If, if you're, you know, not only potentially paying more for your coffee or if you're one of our clients, you're not paying more, but you're definitely paying more for staff. Your rent's definitely still gone up over the last couple of years and your cost of goods has gone up in terms of your food costs or other, you know, um, supplies you, you purchase. You've got to put your price of coffee up. Yep. Right? It has to happen. And we really encourage our cafes to do so carefully and with consideration for their customers and also make sure they're really upfront with their customers about communicating the fact that they are putting it up and why they're putting it up. The one thing that we haven't done and we won't do is put our wholesale price up. We, we'll continue to eat margin. Um, and <laughs> no, I shouldn't say forever, but mm. certainly as long as we can. Um, if we can try and ride out this wave of really expensive coffee, and coffee won't go back to where it was, but if it does come down, yeah, we'll, we'll be in a better position. But we don't want to put any more pressure on the small businesses that we work for. Um, and that's really been important to us. 
because we know their wages have gone up and we know their, their rents have gone up. I mean, wages have gone up 10% over the last two years. Mm. They, that's got to be reflected somewhere. And the last thing we want to do is put more pressure on them with increased wholesale pricing. So we're still encouraging them, put your price up of coffee, but do it because your business is more expensive to run from a labour, from a rent, from a, uh, you know, basically everything that you deal with interest rates is going to impact your business. We'll try and hold on to that coffee price where it is today. So, so at least that's one thing you're not paying more for. Yeah, for sure. So it's been interesting. Yeah, but we'll we'll stick with that. Having said that, for you know, the retail side of the business, um, and certainly certainly premium single origins, that's where prices have had to go up. Um, so whilst we won't change anyone anyone's blend price, um, certainly single origins have to be priced on what you're paying for them. Yeah, you know, as we buy them, you know, some of them have gone up 100 percent, 150 percent on the same quality that we're buying last year. You know, if we st- really want to stock certain Ethiopian coffees, yeah, you know, there's a limited supply, and the price is what the price is. The good thing about single origins is that you're really dealing with that coffee market that probably appreciates those high value coffees. And yeah. if you can still offer you know, blends at a really, um, really affordable price, but single origins at a discretionary price, I'd call it, then then I think we're okay. Yeah. Is your feeling that lower coffee price will come down eventually? The green beans that you're actually buying is that your is that your feeling? Yeah, I mean, shipping's coming down. Shipping's already dropped back by about a third. That's okay. that's probably a big part of it. Yep. Um, and then, I mean, the other thing we're all having is the exchange rate goes up. So, yeah, yeah like the coffee price itself, uh, I mean, we're not commodity traders and anyone's best bet what's going to happen next. And and bearing in mind the commodity price went up because of a lot of external factors, you know, weather conditions more than anything, as well as, you know, um, you know worker rights and, and um, what people get paid. So I think, and and us, like a lot of other specialty guys, we're not buying directly off the sea price. Yeah, we're not buying. If the, if the sea price goes down by 10%, that doesn't really reflect in our coffee pricing more often than not. Mm-hmm. If we can see shipping prices go back down and if we can see our exchange rate improve to, say, 80 cents, that would be awesome. <laughs> and, yeah. if the, and even if the coffee price stays where it is today. Um, obviously, we'd like to see the commodity price come down because it is very inflated. But it's still what we're finding. It's still contract to contract. Like That C price for us as a business is an indicator of where the market's at. But really, when you're going and buying and um, trying to find quality you know, product at a price that you can then either maintain your margins if it's us for blends or not charge ridiculous amounts if it's a single origin. You're just hoping that the the, the, the savings are going to be in the shipping. We've, we've, we've started storing a lot of our own coffee now as well to reduce the storage fees. Yeah, right. Um, just other areas where there's probably no value add. The value add's in the product at the farm. Mm. The rest of it is really middlemen. You know, it's shipping, it's logistics, it's storage, it's financing. Um, and the more we can sort of own that part of the chain, the more we can sort of reduce those costs and then – like I said, let's just have the exchange rate goes up, really. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. It's, it's really interesting in, in a lot of those kind of businesses where you're where you're buying product from overseas. It's always those people in the middle who are making the most mm. the most money, right? Like I've dealt with that a lot, and yeah, it's funny. Um, I was going to ask, like, is climate change something strategically long term that you have to factor in as well? As that might affect yields of where you're getting coffee from, you know, South America or through Africa or through Southeast Asia? Definitely. Yeah, I think yeah. the temperature fluctuations, like any agricultural product, particularly, I mean, we see it in Australia, let alone um, in countries that are heavily, heavily, heavily reliant on these as exports and key exports in their market. It is only, it's it's becoming more and more prolific in terms of these, what used to be called one-off events, now becoming just regular seasonal fluctuations, which, I mean, that's uh, yeah, it's all about yield, right? The less product, yeah. the higher the price. So mm-hmm. it's just going to keep happening. And then, so the coffee price very well may just keep going up from here, this might be the new normal into or the new base that we look at over the years, and maybe it fluctuates around the price it's at today, mm-hmm. um, depending on what the weather events are and where you're buying it from. So, I think you know, I think people will become more strategic about where they're buying coffee from. 
we always used to pride ourselves and still do on stocking, you know, 25 to 30 different single origins. So we still do that. And then we'll yeah. showcase uh, four to five every four weeks. So we sort of rotate through them. But we'll okay. have, we'll, essentially on hand, we'll have a stock of about 25 single origins um, that we then can draw down on. So then we rotate them through and people can try different ones. We can go back to ones. We can build a seasonal blend out of them. Yeah, and it's, it's been really good. It means we can continue to maintain our obsessiveness with offering something different which is hasn't changed but do it in a way that's probably a bit more sustainable from a business point of view but yeah maybe i don't know maybe we'll have to become more selective if if prices go through the roof but like i said if you can try and maintain a, a high quality blend at the price you're at through trying to reduce some of your your, your on costs or your, your middleman costs then that's awesome and we're just gonna have to charge what single origins cost us you know that, that's that's the reality of it yeah it's a premium product yeah um my final question too is obviously you've got you know a really, really competitive landscape. You've got a booming business. You've got seven venues. Got a great trading e-commerce site, retail offering. What's next for you guys in 2022, 23? Uh, well, like I, I think I said this before we started chatting today, we've got a – we're at an interesting point. You know, we kind of went through COVID and just did what we said we were going to do. We, we finished – you know, we only had three venues going to COVID and we came out with seven. Um, and – you know, we've built this awesome RTD range. E-commerce is in a really, really awesome place. And the Espresso Club is, is very exciting for us. Um, I mean, so for us, we've got nothing on the books, which is just like from a from a building point of view, which is awesome. For a business like ours, it's really gone from a very small business to a small to medium-sized business in the last two to three years. Uh, it's kind of nice to be at this point now. We're really just growing what we have, which is which is important to us. Our, our goal over this next year, and we just sort of sat down as a team and went through this, is looking after our people, and that's that's really important to us. I don't think anyone can underestimate the lag effect from you know, the last couple of years. So the first yeah. thing is to look after our people, and the second thing is to, to make the most of the products that we've built. So we're trying to get more uh, product into the market, um, and we're seeing that through RTDs being picked up by a couple of big grocers, which is cool. Um, so that'll be going out into sort of larger scale distribution, which is awesome. Espresso Club's like just phenomenal. Um, and then we're really focusing on the, the office market as well at the moment. So we've got a really great um, product that's coming out for the office market, which will kind of give people awesome coffee at home and awesome coffee at work. And then we're wow. happy. Our, our number one goal is just get awesome coffee in an accessible way wherever you are. And if that's in a cafe, work or at home, that's where we, we play. Um, and so that's that'll be the final piece. And just being, you know, that coffee you have in the morning at home and the coffee you have you know, at work and it's tasting just as good wherever you are. Um, and if we can do that in this next year, look after our people, just finish that sort of next bit of the product, then I think we'll be pretty happy with just a year of, you know, enjoying coffee and enjoying <laughs> business and enjoying the people around us um, and, and maybe not building. But like I said, um, there's, you know, the problem is once you build seven venues, you, you do get offered a lot of opportunities and there are some great opportunities out there. I think for us, we'll just be careful about where we, where we next sort of step. But um, yeah, let's just try and have a happy year, I think. Yeah, I think totally after the couple of years. And I think, um, you know, strategically opening four venues in the last two years is obviously questionable. <laughs> <laughs> it's very impressive. Very impressive. Um, Trevor, where's the best way that people can find out uh, more information about industry beans, especially like the Espresso Club? I think that's going to excite a lot of people. Yeah, just online, just at industrybeans.com. Um, we've tried to build our website to represent everything we do. So head there, the Espresso Club's there, talks about everything else we've done. And we're actually rebuilding the entire website. That's probably, sorry, that's the project I should have mentioned. Yeah, right. We're treating it like building a venue. So we're rebuilding our entire digital platform. Wow. Um, which we're trying to, I mean, this is so, so hard to do, trying to make it feel like an industry means venue online. And so that's going to be an interesting journey for us. So that digital piece will really take it to the next level and building some really cool features for our members of the Espresso Club where they can talk to each other through a forum. And um, yeah, wow. it's going to be awesome. So we'll... Um, Digital space for us, I suppose, is the next 
the next step. Yeah. It's exciting. Yeah. Trevor, thanks so much for your time. Thanks, Sean. Thanks for having me. <laughs> thanks again for tuning in to another episode of Principle of Hospitality. I hope you really enjoyed that one. I know I definitely did. I don't think I could talk to enough people in coffee. It's always a great conversation when we do. So please comment, like, and share this podcast with your friends in the industry. As always, mate, we're, we're making this content with the industry in mind, so we'd really appreciate you sharing along with those that you know. And if you don't know, I suppose, Sash, my co-founder from Principal Design, has one of the best design agencies in Australia. So if you're looking for anything around strategy, branding, digital design, wayfinding, and graphic design, you can find them at principaldesign.com.au and myself at Open Pantry Consulting for anything to do with systems and processes to make your business run even more smoothly. We're also doing something very exciting with people development at the moment. It's going to be called 42 Days and we're going to release that really, really soon. Thanks so much for tuning in to another episode. Until next time, stay safe, everyone. Payo is a payment platform made by Hospo for Hospo. And their new self-checkout technology, Payo Checkout, is here to help you manage your venue. It lets your customers easily settle the bill at the end of their meal in seconds by scanning a Payo Checkout QR code on their table. No apps, no downloads required. Give your customers the convenience of lightning-fast contactless payments and the option to split the bill however they like. Get more tips with Payo Checkout's integrated tipping system and get paid upfront once your customers have confirmed their payment. Start offering self-checkout for your customers and save an average of 10 minutes per table with Payo Checkout, the fastest way to pay in hospitality venues. Setting up Payo Checkout is seamless and pain-free. Visit payo.com.au.